0: Hi, Patrick here with another part on invented languages. The ones we're going to focus on today are languages invented specifically for novels, for fiction. I have to say, I love these. There's something about invented languages on the page that's so seductive. As, as the reader, you, you have to do some of the work to bring a language alive. You imagine how it sounds, how it's pronounced. It might not be the same as the way the author intended, but that doesn't really matter. By contrast, in the movies or on TV, all the pronunciation work is done for you. you. You play a very little part in actually bringing the language to life, aside from listening to it. So what I have today is first a report I've done for the big show. And then after that, I'll play more bits from interviews that I did on the subject. And then there's also, well, you'll hear it, a Christmas song with some made-up words in it. So first over to the voice of the big show, Marco Wurman. This is the world, and this is another
1: world.
0: Actually, it's not quite another world, though the language was created for one. It's a TV weatherman in New Zealand doing his forecast in Elvish. And no, I can't tell whether it's going to be sunny in Christchurch, so don't ask me. Elvish was the linguistic creation of the novelist J.R.R. Tolkien. His book The Hobbit is getting the three-part Hollywood treatment with part one opening tomorrow. The return of Elvish to the big screen is a reminder of just how inventive fiction writers have been over the years in dreaming up new tongues. Here's the world's Patrick Cox. Forget Klingon. Forget Navi and Dothraki. Set them aside. Those are languages created for the screen, large or small, paid for by producers, created by linguists. Think instead of books, books that sometimes become movies like The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, or A Clockwork Orange with its linguistic inventions. There were some sophistos from the TV studios around the corner, (laughs) laughing and gavriting. The Devotchka was smacking away and not caring about the wicked world one bit. Nadsat, Anthony Burgess the called it, his thuggish, Russian-inflected you know. slang. And there's much more of those fantastical words in the book
2: than in the movie. This urge to create new words, it starts young. And there's nothing wrong with making things up as a three-year-old in an afternoon with your best friend. Speech is physical, especially at that early stage. We enjoy exercising the way we produce sounds and the way we hear sounds, too. This is Michael
0: Adams, by the way. He's an English professor at Indiana University, and he's the editor of a book on invented fictional languages.
2: You know, even if we're in private making, making things up, and maybe I'm giving away too much of myself, you know, in the car or the shower or, or wherever I am, but playing with the sounds of language in the way that I suppose a poet has to think about uh, sound and language. Tolkien needed that, a lot of it. And he needed it long before he created his fantasy world. It all started with the languages for him. I mean, there wasn't any story to begin with. There were just words, words that he could use to escape his immediate surroundings, like the trenches in the First World War. Where to pass the time, he did a lot of language invention and some of the prehistory of the language of Elvish is uh, from those days in the trenches.
0: The novels came decades later. By then, Tolkien had imagined an entire history of his invented languages.
2: He would even leave unexplained things in the languages he was working on because any real language you were reconstructing would have unexplained things in it too. So he was, he was trying to mimic the uh, behavior of natural language very closely.
0: That degree of detail may be unrivaled among novelists, although Michael Adams does have someone up his sleeve. More about that in a minute. First, consider what most language creators do in their novels. They set up thought experiments. Ursula Le Guin did that in her science fiction novel, The Dispossessed. She created the Pravik language, or rather, she says, she created a breakaway society of anarchists who themselves created Pravik.
3: They want to remove from the language... Anything that implies ownership.
0: Any private possession.
3: And so you don't have possessive pronouns.
0: And people's names aren't owned, but designated, so that when someone dies, their name sort of goes back into the pool.
3: And the next person born gets it, so that a name is not given and possessed the way it is here. It's, it's again, an anarchist attempt to, to sort of have things in common.
0: That was the experiment. Could words shape thought? Could a language make people behave in a certain way? It's a linguistic hypothesis much poo-pooed by academic linguists. Not that that worries Le Guin. Here's another thought experiment from China Mieville. His recent novel, Embassy Town, owes a debt to Gulliver's Travels. In it, he creates a language for a group of aliens called the Ariaki. It mimics the language of the Garden of Eden. Where the word is the thing. In other words, there's no difference between, say, an apple and the word for an apple.
1: It's why they can't lie,
0: and it's why if they want to use figurative speech at all, they have to construct a situation which they can then refer to. So without being able to draw on a metaphor... If you wanted to say, oh, I feel, you know, I feel like an angry lion today, you would have had to get a lion and make it angry. Otherwise, you couldn't say it because it didn't exist. Mierville came away from his thought experiment with the view that human language, if it's a fall from grace because it allows us to lie, well... It's quite a good fall, really. Okay, back now to Michael Adams and the writer who may have out-Tolkiened
2: Tolkien. This is a French author called Frédéric Vest. He published a a novel called Ward, which is about a group of people called The Ward who speak a language called Wardwazan. We've been down that road before. But in this uh, experiment, the entire work is written in that language. Ah, haven't been that far down the road. Worst, just does the whole text in an invented language, and then he has a parallel French translation of that text. So if you know French, you can read it in a, in a, in a natural language. But I think he's the first person I know who's tried to do a literary work from start to finish in a language uh, never before known in the world. Tolkien never went that
0: far, though he did write to his publisher that he wished he could have included more of his fictional languages in his novels— Restraint, in this case, was probably wise. And Tolkien remains an inspiration to others.
3: You know, Tolkien, he he has an essay called uh, The Secret Vice.
0: This again is veteran novelist Ursula Le Guin.
3: Which is about inventing languages. It's a charming essay. And he spotted the fact that there just are a bunch of us who love to invent languages as well as to learn them. And it's some, some people, a lot of kids do a certain amount of it, and some people carry it on all their lives. It's like kids who draw maps of imaginary islands, you know. Well, some of us go on doing it till we're 80.
0: And the fruits of that kind of imaginative thinking will be on display at Multiplexes this weekend and beyond. Well, a bit of it at least. A few elvish words. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. And no, I'm not going to say that in any of the Elvish languages. This is Tolkien himself speaking here in the Elvish language, of Quenya. Ursula Le Guin, by the way, if you haven't read any of her fiction, go out and get some right now. She is one of the smartest thinkers I think I've ever read, whether she's writing fantasy for teens or grown-up science fiction or, for want of a better word, realistic fiction. I've been reading her novels, all different genres, since I was 15. And actually, a really good place to start would be her short stories, which which I came to quite late. There's a two-volume selection of her stories, her selection, actually. She chose the stories. It's just come out, and it's called The Real and the Unreal. Okay, something I didn't have time to put into the report we just heard was on another thought experiment language. And, in fact, I'm going to play a little clip from a previous pod from about three years ago. I'll link to it on the website theworld.org slash language. So if you want to, you can hear the whole podcast. It's from a conversation that I had with Erica Ockrent. She wrote a book called In the Land of Invented Languages. And this is one of the languages. It's the invention of a linguist called Suzette Hayden Elgin. I I think that's how you pronounce her name. Maybe it's Elgin. And it wasn't really her intention to give... This language, a fictional setting it was it was just the circumstances that had it end up in a novel so here 's a couple of minutes of Erica Arredd and me talking about it there 's another great one that I had a real real soft spot for, and that is the woman 's language. How, how do you say it la, la, Dan?
1: Uh, la Dan, yes
0: ladan. I laughed out loud when you described it as uh, what did you say It has the only language textbook that gives the word for menstruate in lesson one. <laughs> yeah. uh, and not only is it to menstruate, then you learn that there are, there's a word for to menstruate, to menstruate joyfully, to menstruate for the first time, to menstruate painfully, to menstruate early, to menstruate late. And, you know, I just thought that there's, there's got to be a place in the world for a language like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, in English, we're so limited in the way we can talk about menstruation, right? (laughs) So, um, you know, clearly, you know, there's a lot of aspects of this language that relate to women's bodily experiences. But there's also aspects of it that are a little more subtle, I guess you'd say. Um, You have to say the intention of your speech act before you say it so that there isn't these misunderstandings that go – you know, why did you say that? Hey, I was just kidding. No, you weren't. You didn't use the "just kidding" particle before you <laughs> before you stated your sentence, and and so that's seen as a a useful thing in um, a woman's perspective, I guess. Uh, but, but yeah, it's a very interesting language, and it goes way beyond, you know, spelling women with a Y or, you know, the question of gender-neutral pronouns. It's got a lot of uh, interesting thought experiment features to it. If we talk this way, will we be more conscious of women's perspective and women's experience?
0: Erica Okrant, her book is called In the Land of Invented Languages. And let's hear a little bit more now from Indiana University's Michael Adams, whose book, by the way, or the book he edited... That book is called From Elvish to Klingon. Here goes. I'm wondering whether you think um, it's a little bit simplistic to divide languages between fictional and non-fictional and and whether it might be more useful to divide them between sort of those that evolve just completely chaotically um, and those that have more of a, purpose, be it social or otherwise.
2: Or who have an identifiable author. But even then, it's difficult. One one chapter in, in From Elvish to Klingon, the, the book you mentioned, um, is uh, dedicated to uh, reconstructed or revitalized languages like Hawaiian or Maori or modern Hebrew. And clearly, these these are natural languages historically to some extent but then then they're engineered and to the extent that they're engineered they're partially invented so they are they are a type of hybrid of natural language and invented or planned language Uh, in this case, and I think you're right that uh, it looks at first like you could draw a very bright line between the languages that are invented and the languages that are not, Uh, but truthfully, both in accidental and very purposeful ways, that that, uh, boundary is blurred. I thought I'd bring one thing to your attention because I was listening to it in the car on the way over. There is a song by a guy named Roy Zimmerman, which is called Christmas on Mars. And and Merry Christmas in the language of Mars according to the song is Eni Kavini Klibdavac. Um and um I didn't know whether if you found that song you'd be able to use it somehow uh as a segue in the show, but I thought I would bring it up. It's on a on an album called Just One Angel.
0: Oh, that's uh, by, hilarious. By
2: by Christine Lavin. Yeah. So I was listening to this invented uh uh, uh phrase anyway while I was on on my way to do an in- interview about invented languages.
0: That's so good.
2: Yeah. So <laughs>
0: thanks very much. I'll, I'll look out for that and see if there is a way in which uh, we can use it. Great.
3: <laughs> Take Thank care. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. back.
2: That's how they say merry christmas on Mars. Ini back. Too little to and and Lars may say happy hickadabink or jolly jinkin-a binkish moo or simply hickin' g shick everyone. But eeny cavini clibada back means Merry Christmas on the fourth rock from the sun.
0: Okay, that's it for the podcast this time. Hope you liked it. I have fun. See you at the world.org slash language, or on Facebook at the World in Words page, or on Twitter. My Twitter name is, ha ha, it's a fictional name. Well, not really. It's Patrick Cox, P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X. Back in a few days with another
2: part. to Little Mekin' and haka and Lars. You'll get it. <laughs> you may say happy, hinkin' a bink, or jolly, jinkin' a binky spoo, or simply hinkin' a binkin' spick, spick everyone.